You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. Yo, thank you for downloading this podcast and caring about independent music and culture, because that's what we do here at this particular podcast. I, I, I say this what we do here, like literally in my home office as I record these, uh, you know, intros and outros, trying to interact with you, the listener. Well, I, I guess I'm not trying because you're actually actively uh, listening to it, but that's neither here nor there. What is the here and now is the guest this week. And I'll admit, this is a little bit left of center, but this is a person who is steeped within uh, the independent music community and uh, you know is doing something currently that uh, is not attached to it in any way, shape, or form. And I'll set it up appropriately. Her name is Emily Gullickson, and she is a professional gambler in the uh, horse racing community. She does handicaps and pays super close attention to what's happening on the tracks, as it were. And I heard her on another podcast called Gamblers, which is done by the Ringer Podcast Network by the journalist named Dave Hill, if I'm not mistaken. But I heard her story. She, uh, you know, threw in some nuggets uh, in that, that actual podcast talking about, you know, being straight edge and being into punk. And it was one of those things where I was like, wow, like, this is so interesting. and I want to know more. And so... I found Emily online, messaged her, and then uh, we set up the conversation. And it was interesting because she was kind of like, "I don't, I don't, I don't know if I want to do this." Like, not because she was nervous or scared, but she was like, "You know, I typically don't really talk about my my background like that, you know, in depth for like for over an hour, which is obviously what we did." So we made it happen. It was great, and I'll bring that to you in a moment. You can email the show, one hundred words podcast at gmail Always love to hear feedback from you whether or not it's guest ideas and pitches and whatever. I, I receive a lot of those, and I do my best to sort through the ones that need responding, and then, you know, if you just put me on a random email list, I'll probably unsubscribe to you. <laughs> so that happens a lot, but regardless, I appreciate that. And if there's one other thing that you do besides listen to this very podcast, you need to listen to other podcasts, right? This is one I am extremely passionate about. We're doing a little promo swap here, a split seven-inch, as you were, this show is called The Punk Rock MBA. It is hosted by my friend and previous guest of the show, Finn McKenty. He um, He's just an incredibly intelligent individual, and I love promoting his show because I, I am a regular listener. I listen to his podcast on a weekly basis. He puts out great interviews, stuff that is all related to the independent music community that we care about, but he's painting with a very broad brush. He's having people that are like SoundCloud rappers. He has people who are not something that you see getting a lot of coverage out in the sort of, you know, mainstream music world. And he talks to them about how they've grown, you know, what the the marketing angle is. Like he does a lot of deep dives in this stuff. And so I can't encourage you to listen to this podcast anymore because, uh, you know, I, I, I just love it. <laughs> I love it. That's plain and simple. So Click on the link in the show description, and you will be able to check out his podcast. He has a ton of great interviews. I've appeared on it before. But that's not – you don't need to listen to that one. <laughs> but you can listen to a bunch of other great conversations that he's had with people. If you care about marketing and social media and all that stuff that is in relation to the promotion of the thing that you are creating, then you have to listen to the Punk Rock MBA podcast. So do that up. And let's dive into the conversation with Emily. Like I said – she, she actually surprised me on more than one occasion as we started to kind of dig into her past 
She put out records from Spaz, and she just has a lot of cool connections. And uh, we were able to also discuss horse racing because, uh, you know, me as a animal rights advocate and a person that's, uh, you know, vegan and all that stuff, I wanted to know where, you know, she kind of stood on the sort of ethics behind that. So we get in deep. It was a very, very enjoyable conversation. So let's do this now. Like I mentioned to you over email, when I heard that episode uh, of the Ringer podcast, uh, you know, gamblers, it was, uh, I'm not a gambler myself. Like I'm like the most risk averse person possible. So I don't even know why I listened to, to the podcast series. I was just like, oh, this seems interesting. But what compelled me about your particular episode, not only was because you had obviously an interesting story and the way that your your mind worked, uh, but you like just, just the mentions, like, and I'm sure you've experienced this where there are people who kind of like on a surface level know like what punk is, you know, or it's like, they may know who the misfits are, you know, <laughs> but like they don't know like two or three levels deep and hearing your experience, I was like, Oh, Emily knows what's up. <laughs> You're not just kind of like a, you know, a, a tourist for lack of a better term. Um, and I'm sure that most people that interact with you on a day-to-day basis, uh, like, have you found anybody else within, you know, the horse racing community that has a context for where you came from? Um, one other person, one other person. Yes. And so we, we actually like, we connected on that because so many people are like, you know, we connect cause we have horses, but there's no other background. It was like, Oh, you're, you know, he, and he's in a band too. And, um, out, out in, in, He's in Pittsburgh area. Um, yeah. And like, so we just connected on kind of that underground scene and music and like, you know, being a leftist and all the things that kind of come with, with that underground scene. Um, but other, outside of that, no, pretty much it's kind of just like, um, you know, horses are what we have in common. Right. And that, and, and that's what, uh, you know, drew me to you as well, because you, what I find the through line with most people that get involved with this whole, you know, DIY punk and hardcore scene is the the sense of community. And you, you know, you've clearly found that within, you know, the horse racing community. And like, is that something that you kind of like compare and contrast where it's like, oh, I, I'm, I was used to this community in regards to going to shows and, you know, being as active as you were, which we can obviously peel back those layers. But do you see similarities as far as those, you know, communities are concerned? Because, I mean, it's not like horse racing is, I mean, it's more mainstream than, I guess, punk or hardcore, but like, you know, <laughs> does that make any sense? No, it does. And actually, in some ways, it's it's actually a really good comparison because there is kind of like with horse racing and like the backstretch and kind of what goes on more behind the scenes. I mean, most people kind of know horse racing because like the big days, right? But it's like we're running today and it's a Monday and there's, you know, there's all different levels, but you have this community of people that it's like horse racing is their you know, their hardcore scene, you know, it's like, that's their people, that's their community, that's their tribe, you know, you have this language, you have this understanding, you have this history through, you know, the horses itself, you know, through whether it's like, you know, champion horses, or just, you know, this really like hard knocking, you know, kind of lower climbing horse that just kind of shows up every time. And so I think that there is, there are those kind of similarities and crossovers, um, even though it's like a different, you know, a different level from like horses and, you know, music, for example. Yeah, sure. No. And honestly, I do, to me, I think that the most, 
you know, sad thing that you would see in a person's life is when they are not kind of passionate about anything. And like, I don't care if you're passionate about, you know, horse racing or, you know, seven inches or whatever. It's like when you find that weirdo community and you're like, oh yeah, let's dial into this, you know, like let's, let's get real into the weeds here. Like that's what is exciting. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and, and, you know, with horses, it, you have that kind of, that kind of same thing. And it's either, you know, on the backstretch, like I mentioned, that has the connection like with the horse itself and the work that kind of goes into that. Um, but also like from a player standpoint that like, you're all, even though you're competing against each other in some sense, there's still like that connection of like when somebody has a bad beat or, you know, they're alive in something and you want to like root for them to get a score. And so that kind of like brings people together in a way that, you know, maybe people don't have like in, you know, their work life or a family life or some other thing. So it is really that, you know, important kind of outlet for people to, like you said, be passionate about and, you know, something that's just like it's meaningful to them. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. Uh, and that, that, that's why I think that what was, you know, compelling about the through line for you um, and, you know, your, the story that you were telling on that particular podcast was it's like, yeah, like I, I've never felt, you know, I guess at home in any one of these communities per se, but then you were able to find your path and your, you know, tribe for lack of a better term within these communities, both in punk and hardcore and obviously within the context of horse racing. Yeah. And, and they're all intertwined and like it, one, the spot that I'm in now, like wouldn't be there without the other, like, it's just, that is part of my storyline of where I got to where I am. Yeah, no, absolutely. And well, and great transition, Emily. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, from what, uh, you know, I've gleaned from the, you know, the, the podcast and uh, other, uh, you know, kind of internet research that I've done, like, were you, uh, you were born and raised in Northern California, correct? That's correct. Yeah. So, I mean, I was born in LA, but I moved to Sonoma, which is a small town in Northern California at the age of seven. So I kind of grew up in that area. Um, yeah, so pretty much Northern California up until like um, through high school. Sure, sure. Good, good old wine country. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and there, I mean, there isn't. Uh, it, it's funny. Most people that have some level of exposure to you know independent culture. Uh, you know, are, are like within a stone's throw to some larger city or whatever. But then if you are more removed from that, you are left to your own devices to just like stumble across these things, you know, whether it's like a friend that has a mixtape or something or just something that else that's, you know, uh, randomly thrown at you rather than going into a record store and having a record clerk being like, oh, hey, here's the first Ted Kennedy's record or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Sonoma didn't, we, there was actually kind of in and out, there was record stores, because that was still a thing when I grew up there, you know, this is like mid 90s. Um, but like closest, like scene, like where music where I like went to shows and stuff was um, Santa Rosa, which was like, at that point in time, I didn't have a car, I wasn't able to drive, but it was like a 30 to 45 minute bus ride. And then we had um, Phoenix Theater and Petaluma, which did tons of shows um, at that time. So between like those two, that was pretty much like where the shows were. And then there there was actually um, a DIY kind of club that kind of opened up that was kind of like in and out, um, like a teen center that offered shows as well, actually in Sonoma. So that was like really cool when you could actually like get a show in, in town. Yeah, no, that's really cool. And I'm sure too, with that experience, uh, like all the kids in the community went to those shows just because it was something to do on a Friday night. 
Um, yeah, but you know, there wasn't so much like from Sonoma per se. Like there wasn't like a lot of like punk kids in Sonoma. In fact, I wish that there probably were more. So it was usually like people from out of town that would just like come in with the bands. Yeah, Yeah. that's true. That's yeah. They, they, they bring their friend crew. Right. Exactly. (laughs) And so what was your uh, family structure like growing up? Like, are you an only child, brothers and sisters, mom and dad in the house? Um, so yeah, I, I, my parents are separated now or divorced now. Um, but they were when I was growing up, um, I'm the oldest of four, so I have one sister and two brothers. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. What's sure. a lot more to say outside of that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A very, I, I'm going to guess that, uh, you know, it was kind of your, uh, average, uh, suburban upbringing, even though, well, I mean, I guess you would consider, you know, Sonoma County, like a, a suburb, but maybe a little more rural. Um, yeah, no, definitely. It's, it is a little bit more rural. I mean, it's different, you know, it's different now, um, getting a little bit more suburb just as like the big cities are just like so tough to live in and things like that. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, that was pretty much, you know, not really my scene. I never really liked Sonoma. I don't know if it was like the fact that I was like born in LA and then all of a sudden like transported into this like little town all of a sudden. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I moved to Berkeley when uh, my senior year in high school. So, like, when I was 17, um, I had already <laughs> skipped out. I finished high school, but I would, like, commute back and forth from Berkeley. Wow. wow. Commuting your senior year. That's pretty uh, That's pretty gutsy, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, I, there was a little bit of an advantage to that point because it was we had just switched to block scheduling, and I had done, like, summer school every single year. So I only had to go to school every other day. Ah, so you, you were, uh, you, you very much had a focus of being like, let's get high school over as quickly as humanly possible. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, that, that, it's funny. I've never heard that plan of the, you know, I'm going to take summer school every year in order to get through this quicker. Usually, you know, summer school is for kids that obviously, you know, don't pass their algebra class they shouldn't belong in or whatever. No, I, I, you know, it wasn't so much like I wish I could like take credit for that plan. It just kind of like worked into place. But it was always like my parents were like, you have to do summer school. And whether it's like, you know, take and when it got to high school, it was like you could take this class and then you don't have to do it in the regular year, which was like, OK, that's kind of incentive. Or they're like, you can take whatever you want. Just like do this. I just maybe they didn't want to watch me or something. But right. I always took <laughs> I always took summer summer school classes from like as as young as I could possibly remember. So, um, yeah, I mean, part of it was like finishing high school and then I just really didn't have any interest in going right into college. That was for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so uh, just, you know, from an outsider's observation, like, you, you know, you, you seem like a, you know, pretty friendly person and, uh, you know, outgoing to a certain extent. Um, you know, what, what kind of, I guess, person were you as you started to develop your identity? You know, I'm going to presume that a lot of it was based around as you started to get into music and kind of being like, oh yeah, I'm into like some weird stuff. So, you know, I'm going to be the weird kid in school, not by a decision, but, you know, just kind of by uh, your own interests, Uh, you know, so where did you find yourself? Um, I'm, you know, it was kind of like my interests were always just kind of surrounded by activities. And I'm still that way, to some extent, I'm not so much like a a hangout just to hang out type person. So everything to me, like, in high school was like evolved around, um, you know, sports, when I played sports, um, debate, when I did debate, drama, you know, and then outside of that, it was like, I was social with people like within that, within that group. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, and I'm still, I'm still that way. Like, it's hard for me to go out unless it's like, here's this show or here's this movie or here's this, you know, gallery or, you know, whatever. It's hard to just be like, let's just get together for <laughs> getting together. <laughs> that just doesn't seem natural. Like I'll do it, but I don't like, I, I definitely don't instigate that, um, you know, that kind of gathering. Right. No, well, I, it's funny. Cause I, you saying that is definitely like, I mean, you hang out as a kid, obviously, just because, like, you're, you know, maybe killing time or whatever. But the, you know, event based, like, I'm only going to do this if, like, we're doing this rather than just, like, hey, come over. It's like, well, what are we doing, though? Like, <laughs> right. I still, I'm still that way. Like, what are we going to do? Like, what's happening? Like, what, what's going on? Right. So, you're like, I could, I could just hang out here. It's fine. Like, if we're not, there's nothing, you know, that's like happening. <laughs> we don't need to do this. Yeah. And, and also too, I mean, we didn't mention it before, but like I, I, my background, I did grow up with horses. Like, so I, we didn't have them at our house or anything, but um, I belonged to like a stable, I guess is kind of the best way to like describe it. And so mm-hmm. I took horseback riding lessons and I worked out at the bar. And so um, that was a big part too, where I would much rather be around horses than people from a very young age. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Animals are better than humans. <laughs> and, and I guess consider all things considered in old age as well. So uh, that's pretty <laughs> much my social circle is horses. <laughs> sure. Sure. Uh, and was that, I guess, was uh, horses kind of, you know, thrust upon you by your uh, parents, like looking just for activities for you? Or was that something that you were attracted to because you just, you know, randomly saw them driving by or something like that? Um, Yeah, no, it's kind of interesting. So um, my mom actually has history with the racetrack from her dad. So my grandfather going to the racetrack um, in Southern California, and then she was around horses, like she took lessons. So it was one of like the first things when we went up to Sonoma, um, kind of that's when I started to ride horses was that way. So um, I did have, you know, uh, that privilege in a sense that like my parents did introduce me to horses. Um, And, you know, it's, I I mean, it is a privilege in a sense with horses because that's kind of why I ended up kind of leaving is it's can be very, very expensive. Oh, sure. Yeah. It's definitely like the, um, you know, most people lump like, you know, golf and skiing and like these, these sports that, you know, it's not just as simple as, you know, picking up a ball and then being like, let's do, let's do this. It's like, no, there's a lot of equipment involved here. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I, I definitely wasn't on like the higher end of it. Like I worked at the barn to kind of help pay for lessons and to like, you know, all that type of stuff. Um, which, you know, at that time it's like, it doesn't really feel like work at all. You're like, you're paying me to do this. I would do this for free, you know, type of, <laughs> type of stuff, um, to be, to be around horses. But, you know, eventually you get to a point where it's like, you want to go to shows and then like, you know, everybody around you has horses that are like five figures and like, it's just your parents just think you're crazy at that point, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, I'm going to, I'm going to need this Philly because of this. And they're like, what are you talking about? No, no, you yeah. Don't they're one. like, do you know how much like $20,000 is? And you're like, well, everybody else has one. Like what? You know, <laughs> and you kind of have to learn, learn early on, like to live kind of within your means. Right. Well, and I mean, and plus, like, you know, let's be honest, that's definitely a kid's dream to own a horse, you know, like, that's like almost every kid goes through that phase of like, hey, 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 mom or dad, can I can I have a horse? It's like, wait, no, that's a lot. We can't do that. Right, right. Like, even now, I would love to like have a horse or like a partnership and a racehorse. And it's like, gosh, it's so expensive. So <laughs> I, I had to settle for a greyhound dog who's a former racer. And that's I'm okay with that. 
<laughs> right, right. Yeah, the more entry level. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so, like you mentioned, kind of as you were going through, you know, high school, you were, you know, attracted to sports and kind of events. And it, it sounded like you had um, a lot of different experiences with that. I'm going to presume that that's also kind of where music uh, injected itself, uh, into your life or was that a little bit later? No, that was, you know, kind of all around the same time because it's like, you just start getting into like more, you know, underground type stuff, like whether it's music, you know, things that are just kind of like edgy, right. If you're talking like you're a, a young teen. Um, so like music, you know, just kind of gets tougher and like looks cooler, you know, those types of things like movies, you start getting into cult movies. So it was just sort of like, that that kind of like okay well if this is available you know I want to what's next you know I want something harder or like darker or whatever and so yeah music kind of came along with with that same time got it got it and how um I guess how did it get how did you get exposed to it was it just kind of you know permeating I mean obviously I'm gonna place us probably a roughly around the same age uh but like you know was it kind of like through mtv or was it you know radio like how did it how did it get into your life yeah you know it's such a weird question because like i i've like thought about that like tried to figure it out and i still like i don't really i don't really quite know to be honest sure. um like yes like i I had MTV, I watched, you know, but it wasn't like so much that, um, radio was around, um, picking things up from like older, you know, um, classmates at school that like listened to music and, you know, wore band t-shirts and things like that. But I don't know like where, where like the real kind of entry point was. Sure. Sure. Yeah. It wasn't like this, um, you know, definitive moment where, you know, the, the sky parted and, you know, all of a sudden your start, starter kit records were delivered to you. <laughs> right, right. No, it was, it was like something that like I was like searching for. And so it just kind of like, it just sort of like happened, so to speak, you know, and like not necessarily knowing quite what I was searching for, but it was like, it just kind of, it came to be. And like going sure. to shows, like once that happened, it was like, oh, this is, you know, this is, this makes sense. Right. And what were kind of the, the first bands that, you know, started you, uh, you know, pursuing that, uh, you know, quest for, you know, darker, weirder stuff? Um, I mean, being being that area, being up in like, you know, Santa Rosa and like Petaluma at that time, like that was like right when AFI was like starting. So yep. they were like a big, you know, a big band for that time. Right. And obviously they're, you know, crazy successful and like for all the right reasons. But, um, you know, so going to see them. And then of course, then it's like the bands that are opening for them and just being like, you know, it's Friday. I'm going to go to, you know, Phoenix theater or, you know, this coffee shop is having bands and I don't know them necessarily, but I'm going to go and then just be exposed and like buy tapes and records. And from there, it's like, you're just like sucked into the underground. Yeah, no. A AFI is, is such uh I mean, they're such an incredible band for so many different reasons, but one of them is because they obviously came from, you know, the punk and hardcore scene and they you know, brought so many bands along with them and then especially in northern California where it's like they were always, you know, kind of square peg round holing it or it was like, yeah, you guys are like, you, know, you guys are punk, but like, you're not Green Day punk. But then, you know, like, I guess you can play these hardcore shows. Like, I guess you can play with the nerve agents or whatever. But it was just such an interesting band because they cast such a wide net to bring a bunch of different people into, you know, that kind of music scene. Yeah. And it kind of felt like that during that time. 
for whatever reason, there was just shows that were like such a mix, right? Like where you'd have like a real like straightforward punk band and then a hardcore band and then it's like a ska band and it's like that was like all one show. Like there was just like and and that wasn't like rare. That was pretty common at that time. Now listen, you have heard me espouse the amazing services at rockabilia.com. And what are you waiting for? Go to rockabilia.com, check out their selection, use this promo code PC100Words. That's the letters PC and the numbers 100 words. That will get you 15% off your order. They will know that this show sent you their direction, and then they will in turn, you know, thank me. <laughs> because that's why this whole one hand washing the other thing, that's exactly what happens with Rockabilia. But what's more important is the fact that you can get unbelievable band merch there, whether you're talking about beanies for the cold weather, hoodies, jackets, puzzles, posters, whatever you can possibly imagine, they have it in spades. Amazing customer service, fast shipping. This is the real deal. This company has been business for over 20 years, and there's no reason that you can't have fun on their website and order a bunch of stuff, okay? So please use the code PC100Words that gets you 15% off your order, and then reap the benefits that I have given to you as a exclusive listener of this podcast. So thank you very much, Rockabilia. Now buy some band merch. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I love seeing, you know, flyers from, you know, the mid nineties, uh, and late nineties where it was like, I mean, that was my experience too, of going to shows where it's like, oh yeah, like everyone just plays together because uh, mostly out of just function because it's like, well, like this is a place and you play shows like, you know, if you're of a certain genre of music, which is, you know, casting a very wide net, you'll play together. That's just a reality. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I, I love, I, I, there's one flyer in particular. I remember it was like, I, I, you know, a show in New York, whether it was like ABC, no Rio or CBGBs or something where it's like, you know, spaz and the get up kids. And you're just like, okay. Like, <laughs> yeah, I remember, those, I remember those shows like completely. That was like very normal. Totally. It's like, yeah, of course. Like this band happens to be on tour. Spaz has to be, you know, happens to be playing a show. So of course I'll play together. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then it, it strikes me too with, uh, you know, just kind of your trajectory, not only what you've done, you know, with uh, horse racing and gambling and, uh, but, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that you, uh, you know, have done within the context of like the punk and hardcore community is the, um, you know, self-starting nature of like your interests. And like you said, you know, working at the stables and being like, oh yeah, like I know I'm doing this because I'm paying this off, but like, this is just fun for me. There's a lot of self-starter nature in you. Uh, where did that come from? Um, again, I'm not really, I'm not really sure, but it's, it's definitely there. Um, hmm. and yeah, I mean, I think that was probably another thing about being in, you know, being kind of in that scene and being exposed like early on, it was like everything just kind of like created from scratch. There was some groundwork obviously from, you know, the older kids at that time. And so the newer kids kind of picked up, but it was like, you can start a zine, you can start a this, you can start a that. And like this, you know, that has just followed me everywhere. So like being in Arizona, um, I was like part of like the first like resurgence of roller derby. Um, like when that came around. So it was like, we're going to kind of create this out of nothing. You know, there's a gr some girls down in Texas that are doing it. We have a little bit of framework, but we're going to do it here. So we got to like recruit. And basically it's like you're putting on a show, right? It's like you got to practice and like have this event and then there's like band. So, you know, being involved and kind of bringing my energy of like, yeah, we can create this from nothing. Like we can make this a thing. 
And then with optics, which is like my company now for horse racing um, data. Um, so I had like decided to go back to school. And at that time, I kind of had this opportunity to work for, for optics. And I don't think there's a lot of people that would just be like, I'm going to give up, you know, the schooling to just, you know, do this DIY project startup, you know, kind of give everything away. But for, like for me, I'm like, oh, I would go to school in order to have this opportunity. So if this opportunity is going to present itself like right here and now, I'm going to jump on it. I have, you know, some ideas that can help this project. And if it doesn't work out, then I can go back to school. But I'm willing to like, you know, work on something that's brand new and bring that kind of energy to it. That just sort of fits my personality. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, I think it's, you know, even though it fits your personality and it fits many people's personalities, they get attracted to, um, you know, subculture and, you know, different paths in life. You know, not everybody likes to, I guess, contribute, you know, like they'll just maybe, you know, be content to whatever, going to shows or whatever, which is fine. Obviously, that's, you know, why people go to shows to begin with. But the the sort of next level nature that I, I know you kind of, you know, went into, um, like, did you, uh, you know, I mean, I know, like you mentioned over email, like you put out a few records, like, did you put on shows as well? Um, did you ever have the idea of like trying to play in a band or anything like that? Um, so yeah, both, both those records are actually like when I was still in high school, um, I put those out. Um, please please tell the uneducated audience, uh, what records you put out and under what, what, uh, record label that you named it. So, um, yeah, so Sacapuntas, which was actually a name of a song, one of like this, you know, the punk bands, um, around Santa Rosa at that time. Um, and so the first record I put out was um, Spaz Slobber, um, and that was actually for a high school project. Um, in order, <laughs> yeah, amazing. yeah, in order to, to do that. So um, Athena at six weeks, like she was like my mentor for the project. She was a school teacher, um, so <laughs> I was kind of like, at, at least at that point in time. I mean, that's kind of another like thing that's kind of carried me, kind of you know where I'm at and, and taking risks and whatnot is just like putting my posi- myself in a position where um, I, I can be happy with yes, but also accepting of no. So, you know, asking bands like, hey, Spaz, can you do a record with me for my high school project? And it's like, what's the worst they're going to say is no. Like, that's fine. I'm okay with that. Um, and I can go forward. So, um, yeah, that was that. And then um, after doing that, um, I was talking to um, Rich from Enemy Soil, just like online about doing another record. And he's like, oh, you know, you know, we'll do it. Yeah, sure. That's fine. Um, but there's this band that like you should totally check out. They're awesome called Page 99. And then he sent me their demo and I'm like, oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like This totally rocks. So, um, yeah, Page 99 Enemy Soil is the second record. I didn't do anything after that. But that's... Um... I mean, that, it's just wild that you put out two records from, you know, bands that, uh, you know, arguably are like cornerstones within their own particular scenes, you know, Spaz and Power Violence and Page 99 with the whole Screamo scene, not, you know, discrediting Slobber or, you know, Enemy Soil, because obviously they were good bands as well. But um, and did you just like, did you just pay for it yourself? Like, uh, like, I, like I imagine, you know, <laughs> when you're putting out your own records, that's where you get the funds from. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I had a job since I was like 15. Obviously, I moved out early, you know, so um, yeah, that money from working is what paid for it. 
That's amazing. I just love the idea that you put out a spaz record as a high school project. It's just it fits in with spaz <laughs> mythology for sure. Yeah. Um, and when you, um, I guess, kind of going back to that, uh, you know, did you like want to play in a band, or was that something that you were just like, no, that's not my bag. I'm not interested in that. You know, I just don't. I don't really have any like musical talent, like at all. Um, so it just was like more frustrating for me than anything to try to learn the few times that I did. So, um, it just, it was kind of like clear to me <clears throat> early on, I like screamed in a couple bands, but outside of that, you know, it was just like, not where I really wanted to be. Sure. Yeah. And, and I think that, I mean, you know, not having any musical talent didn't stop a lot of people in our scene. So, but then... Yeah, I, between no no talent and no drive, it was like kind of a dead end. Right. And that's the thing where it's like, you know, there are some people where it's like, you know, come hell or high water, I'm going to do this. And there's other people where it's like, oh, no, this is not like, this is not how I can uh, find value out of this. <laughs> this is right, not right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and when you, you know, when you moved out, uh, and you know, were sensibly on your own, um, would I presume, was that a, uh, a choice that was dictated by uh, you or your parents or was that a kind of a combination of both? No, that was definitely, definitely me. So at that point in time, I was pretty much spending like every weekend in Berkeley anyways. I mean, just from like the moment, you know, take a bus or like before I had my license, you know, would just be like gone for the weekend. So, and that's where my friends were. I really didn't have any friends in Sonoma. There was like nothing that kept me there. It was just kind of like, I just can't wait until the weekend to just like go. So, you know, the opportunity kind of came up to where one of the um, girls that I was friends with was like, Oh yeah, I'm going to sublet this place. Do you want to be my roommate? And I'm like, yes, definitely. And so that was, you know, that was that. Got it. Got it. Um, and did you, you know, as you started to like bring this, you know, really weird stuff home, like, you know, music styles, like maybe, you know, your diverging interests in a lot of different things. Did your, was there conflict with your parents at home because they were like, Hey, uh, Emily, you know, we, we support your passions, but like, what the heck are you into? What is this? No, I don't think there was, you know, I don't think there was much support. <laughs> I wouldn't say like at all. Um, so yeah, no, I definitely like got in trouble and was like defiant from that aspect. I don't think they it would be at that point in time like supportive of what 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 my decisions were, you know, um from appearance to music to, you know, the friends that I had at that time. It definitely wasn't like an easy transition from that aspect. Um um but yeah, I mean you know, everything kind of like has a reason. So I, I think I made life easier on my younger siblings from that aspect. Like there was nothing more <laughs> that my parents could have had thrown at them, you know? <laughs> and then also just with every decision I've, I've made kind of since it's been like, okay, well, you know, she's probably fine. <laughs> you know, And I've become more accepting of, you know, me doing what I'm doing. Sure. Right, right. And I mean, no, dropping you know, dropping out of school to like be a professional gambler again, you know, is like not not an easy thing to tell your parents, you know, even when you're an adult. So, no, no. I mean, it's the, honestly like hearing that part of your, of your story where it was like 
hey, like I, I'm you know doing well and I'm making some money off this thing. So like I need to put more attention to it. Um, it's the same conversations that, you know, when people are like, hey, I'm touring in a, in a band and like, you know, hey, mom and dad, like I'm not going to go to college. And they're like, what are you talking about? Like you're you're making five dollars a day at the most. Like, what is this? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. And it's like, it's, it's still, you know, you still go back and forth of like, was this the right decision? Was it not? You know, you kind of wait. But um, yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, sometimes you just kind of have to gamble and do it. And if it doesn't work out, you know, you figure it out afterwards, you know? Yeah, it's like, yeah, you got to. Well, the, the concept of like, you, you have to try this because like, you don't want to sit back and be like, oh man, I, I wonder what it would have been if I did this. It's like, if it failed, like if it, that it failed, but you tried it. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, my, my opportunities, like, again, going to school was like, I, at that point in time decided, you know, I want to work in the horse racing industry, so I'll go to school. So at least I can like apply to these jobs and, you know, say that I've at least have the education in order to like be in these positions. Um, so, you know, having that opportunity, it was like, oh, I get to like create a project and like a project that I believe in and something that's different um, was like far more appealing than just being like an employee and just having to work in an industry that I enjoy. Sure. Right. Having some authorship over, you know, how you can contribute to, you know, the community that you're a part of. Right. Right. So, um, yeah. yeah, that was, that was just sort of like what it came down to when I was making, you know, sort of that decision at that point. Sure. Sure. Um, and, and like you mentioned kind of at the very top of the conversation in regards to, you know, your, uh, political beliefs and a lot of the influence that, you know, subculture has, you know, on us that as we start to get into it, you know, whether it's like veganism, straight edge, all those things. Cause I know, well, are, are, are you still, do you still define yourself as straight edge or is that, uh, you know, not a label that, uh, <laughs> that, that describes no, you anymore? No, I, I still do. And I'm actually kind of quite proud of that. Um, so Good. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I, I, I am, I am 40 years old and I am still straight edge as well. So it's a weird thing to say that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, we are definitely the same age then. Yes. <laughs> I and I I think it's funny like when and I'm sure you experience this when you I mean less so now cuz obviously we're not in social situations but like you know do people automatically assume like when you say you don't drink that you're a recovering alcoholic or super religious Um you know some sometimes yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> that it's kind of it's kind of one of those things or um yeah, to where it's it's purely a choice. And I really just like I have like no interest. I mean, I've opened the door to myself to where it's like, if I ever felt like it, I would, but I really have no desire. And the older that I get, it's like I have less and less desire to like, have that in my life. Sure, sure. Yeah. And, I, and plus, I mean, I find this and I'm sure you've experienced this too, where it's like, I don't have, uh, you know, the, I guess, patience or time to be able to explain what straight edge is to a person who's obviously never heard about that philosophical decision. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's probably true. I think I just kind of like skip over it. I'm just like, I'm straight edge. I don't drink or smoke. <laughs> and like, that's the end of the explanation. Right. They're like, straight edge? Question mark? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so anyways, going back to the, you know, getting exposed to a lot of that and starting to apply these labels to yourself, um, you know, was that... Uh, did you find Did you find it kind of like drinking from a fire hose where it was like all of a sudden it was all of this stuff and you were all in on it or did it, you know, was it kind of like a, a gradual progression as you started to learn about this? Um, you know, everything was, a, was kind of a little bit at a time. I mean, I 
kind of started straight edge and then broke edge and then came back, you know, kind of came back around to it um, from that from that front. Um, in terms of politics, I'd probably say kind of, you know, kind of the same the same thing. A lot of the um, I get more into theory as I'm older than just being like, you know, the kind of basics of being, you know, an anarchist of like, you know, so I'm like reading a lot more now and kind of more understanding those, those aspects, but there's definitely that foundation that was put in there um, kind of right from the start. Mm -hmm, Sure. And then I know that uh, there, you were at one point like a vegan vegetarian, like where does that kind of sit in your life now? Yeah, um, I was for a really long time, and then um, uh, I guess now it's been like ten years since I've I've started to like eat meat and kind of leave that. But um, I still don't do much dairy or eggs. Just you know, it's kind of weird for me to do that. Um, but it was more of a it was more of a kind of a health decision um, because I was just having a really hard time just with um, food allergies and stuff to like remain vegan. Um, so yeah, I, it's. I try to make ethical decisions from that um, perspective, but um, yeah, that's not, not a label I can, I can use anymore. Sure. Sure. Well, and I think, I mean, I always usually have discussions with people that, you know, at, at one point were vegan or vegetarian and aren't anymore. It's like, to me that, I mean, that's not that important. It's the fact that you're viewing the lens or you're, you're viewing the world through a lens of that rather than people who have never been interested, never been exposed to it, and are just like, whatever, I don't care. <laughs> it's just this, you know, there's a whole blank spot in a person's life with that. Whereas like, if you've been exposed to it and you decide not to, that's fine. You're making that collective decision with all the information at hand as opposed to the other way around. Yeah, right. I, I think that's important. It is an important distinction. And so, you know, something that uh, I, I know you were interested in talking about and I was interested as well, where um, the, you know, the notion of what most people think about in regards to horse racing, where it's like, uh, you know, obviously animals used for sports and entertainment and like that sort of, you know, convention that the, you know, horses are, especially for most mainstream, you know, whether it's like HBO's production of luck or whatever. Was that, was that the, the television show that was about horse racing? I can't remember. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So most mainstream outlets are like, you know, you're either, uh, you know, a super rich, well taken care of horse um, or, you know, which may might be the minority or you're just this, you know, random horse that, you know, gets whatever. It's a it's it's a transactional thing. It's not an actual living being. You're just being used for a profit or whatever. Um, You know, walk me through how your, I guess, understanding of the industry as a whole and, you know, what I guess misconceptions are out there in regards to that. Yeah, it's, it's definitely something like within the industry that we have to struggle with. And I think it's kind of one of those things too, that sort of my background of being somewhat of an outsider in this perspective and then seeing like kind of stepping back and going like, how does somebody who's not involved in horse racing kind of view horse racing and, and understand that. And then it's like, then we can bridge, bridge the gap of like, actually, here's what happens, right? Here's what's going on. So it's interesting to me, and I want to have conversations with people, um, you know, to, to kind of understand, like, you know, is, is there like, where's, where's the compromise, right? So I mentioned earlier, like, I have a dog that I have a greyhound, right? 
And mm. so I'm constantly stopped and I'm walking him of like, oh, is he a greyhound? You know, did he race? Oh, it's such a good thing that you rescued him. And it's for the most part, I don't really take the time out of my day to be like, well, actually, he's retired. You know, there's a big retirement program that works with the racetracks. Ninety over ninety nine percent of the dogs that race are rehomed. You know, like there's there's this whole thing when they're on the racetrack, they're actually really well taken care of, probably better than most pets, believe it or not. You know, it's like they when they race, they race once every seven to ten days. Their races are twenty seconds long. You know, for the most time, it's like they're being fed great food and like get bathed and get exercised and like hang out with their friends and and you know it's people that like with horse racing with dogs it's like you're drawn to those arenas because you love animals not because you hate them and you see them as you know something terrible it's like there's no place you'd rather be than be around these animals and it's such a joy to your life that you get to experience that with them mm-hmm. so um i think in, in horse racing uh you know it's similar in the sense that i i don't think people understand that's like we're we're around horses because we love horses and there are you know it's tragic. Like when we lose a horse on the track, it's never just seen as like, Oh, well there goes another one. You know, it's like, it's, it's still emotional to me, you know, not the horse, not being my own, but if I see a horse, you know, break down, that's what we'll call it on the track, you know, a horse breaks down on the track and it's like, it's still like, it still hurts, you know, like that's, it's still an animal. Um, and so I, should I explain breaking down? Cause maybe, yeah, you know, absolutely. I, I, sure. it's, <laughs> I'm on a hardcore show, like explaining, do you know what a breakdown is? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to, we're going to make a different word out of this here. Um, so with horses, um, so horses, like just as animals, right? Like they, if they're out in, you know, quote unquote wild, um, their defense system is being able to run, right? They can't fight. Like they're not going to be able to fight off, you know, a predator type animal. Their best case is like they're with a herd and to run. And so for a horse, like if they break a leg, that is fate for them, right? So like if they're in the wild and they break a leg, it's not like that bone is going to heal. They're just kind of left there for dead, you know, uh, to be, you know, eaten by whatever to die by natural causes. So it's, it's really unfortunate. So that is just something that occurs in nature and it's something that happens on the racetrack and, you know, sometimes no fault of anybody. It's just like a horse can take a bad step or whatever. Um, and so when a horse breaks their leg, that will be assessed on the racetrack. Obviously if the horse can be saved, they will, but sometimes the most humane course of action is, um, is to, to euthanize, right? Because this horse is in pain. Um, they're not going to be saved. And like, you just don't want to bring any more, you know, pain to them. Um, something that would be like a longer process if they were out in the wild. Does that kind of make sense? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it's less of like them being like, Oh, this horse can't run anymore. Let's just get rid of them. It's like, this horse is, you know, this is the most humane decision in this situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Yeah. Cause I, I mean, I think it, I, I, for, I mean, I, I worked at PETA for gosh, four or five years and it was one of those things where, um, you know, there's a lot of things that obviously the organization, you know, quote unquote does wrong. Like a lot of people don't agree with a lot of their, their uh, practices and principles. And, you know, frankly, my uh, perception of the way that, uh, you know, the racing industries at large, you know, treat these animals. It's like, yes, there are definitely, you know, 
I mean, I hate to use the term bad apples because that always just like, you know, that's what everybody says about every group that is, uh, you know, appropriate, you know, maybe not appropriately, uh, you know, taken in context. But I was always like, well, these, these animals, like, you know, by a sheer capitalistic nature are quote unquote making money. So they, there's a benefit to treating them, you know, well or kindly, you know, just in a sheer, like I said, capitalistic point of view. Um, and so is that something that also you have kind of witnessed as far as like perceptions are concerned, or is that something that uh, is just, you know, like regardless of if an animal is quote unquote making money, like, you know, they're treated well. Yeah, they're, I mean, they are, they're for the most part, it's just like, it's somewhat of a routine with a horse, right? It's like they, like for race horses, you know, they only race, um, you know, if they're like the top level horses, they might race once a month, but generally speaking, you know, they're racing every three, four weeks. And again, these races, um, in terms of like time and duration that they're on the track, it's like, it's no more than two minutes. Like the Kentucky Derby is two minutes. That's one of the longest horse races that we race in the country. For the most part, the races are around a minute, um, in duration. Um, and that's occurring every, you know, once a month, let's say, um, so for the rest of the time with this horse, um, it's treated quite well and it's very routine, right? So it's like they're being fed every morning, you know, they're being fed good food. Um, they get out for exercise. They get bathed every day. Um, you know, they're, they're living at the racetrack. It's like the, the stalls are clean on a regular basis. They're constantly monitored. There's people around. There's, you know, other animals around, whether it's like goats or cats or whatever, Um so it's, you know, for, for a horse itself, I mean, it's, you know, a, a pretty good, it's a pretty good existence, right? I mean, it's no difference than, you know, a horse that's a pet, again, probably a, a better situation being constantly monitored um, and kind of looked after. Sure, sure. No, that makes sense. Um, you know, and like you were kind of talking about originally when you reached that kind of inflection point in your life where you had to make a decision of like, okay, do I do the kind of you know, traditional job stuff or, you know, do I focus on, you know, gambling and, you know, handicapping and everything you do now um, as kind of a career? Um, you know, once you made that decision and started on that that path, you know, were there, um, you know, was there a moment or two where you were like, oh, this feels real? Like, um, you know, I mean, I'm going to, you know, compare it to, you know, when a band obviously starts, you know, playing <laughs> you know, a 200 cap venue and they're like, wow, we sold it out and we sold like a thousand dollars of merch or whatever. Like, wow, this feels real. Um, you know, was there a couple of moments where you felt like, oh, wow, like this is, I guess this is a thing like that I have made this decision and I'm, I'm happy that I made this decision. Yeah. It, it, there, there's definitely a few moments like that. And there's still at the same time where it's like, you're still like, is this my life? Like, this is great, you know, like right. this is, there's nothing else I'd rather be doing. You know, I get to look at horses, like any job, right. It can be tedious or whatever, but it's like, I'm looking at these races for a living and like, you know, all my work for the most part is sort of like, it's creative content and it's put out there. Like it's, you know, it's for sale for purchase for subscription or whatever. So like everything that I write, it's like somebody's reading it. You know, so it's kind of, you know, it's interesting from that aspect of like, you know, I mean, there's royalties on my work. So from that aspect of like, oh, I sold this out and like, you know, I, I'm making money. It's like I'm getting a royalty check. Like people are resubscribing and they're buying my work. Like that's good. You know, that's that's interesting. You know, like that's a, I guess that's sort of like what you said, like you made it or whatever. Um mm -hmm. 
I don't know. Does that answer? <laughs> I guess it's kind of weird, like going back and forth. No, no, it, it, no, it, it makes, it makes sense. I mean, I think that the, especially when you're talking about, you know, gambling and like that, uh, side of life, like, you know, most people that hear the word professional gambler, they're just like, Oh, there's some, you know, weirdo that's rolling dice in a dark alley or whatever, you know, it's like it, it there is a, a, a seediness that is inherently attached to that description. Um, you know, uh, fairly or unfairly from whatever person's experience is, you know, have you had to, I mean, have you had to, I guess, dissuade people of like, no, I'm not like some shady person that's like, you know, doing drugs on the side or something like that. You know, do people kind of lump that on you or am I just making that up? No, no. I think, I think again, this is like, I like hearing this stuff because it's like what normal, you know, what people think that are on the outside looking in. And so, yeah, for sure. Like I, I can still like think of my mom's face, like, you know, certain reactions of like, here's what I'm doing or, you know, telling my family members of doing that. Like, oh, well, you know, your family has a history of, you know, um, degenerate gambling and you have to be careful, you know, like there's that sort of stuff that, that comes along with it. And I think that's fair. Right. I mean, I think that's a good people care about you. They're interested. You know, they want to make sure that you're making good decisions and not hurting yourself. So in some ways it's benevolent from that aspect. But um, yeah, I mean, when I tell people like what, you know, if I'm meeting somebody or dating or whatever, and I tell people what I do, I definitely am like, how is this going to be? How are they going to react to what I say I do? Right. Because it still comes off as like something that's if, if you don't know me, unstable. Right. Like maybe I'm rich today. Maybe I'm poor tomorrow. You know, like that type of a type of a thing. Am I going to try to sell all your stuff, you know, <laughs> in order to like bet a horse? You know, so there is right, that, right. that kind of like perception that comes with it. Um, and so I'm not I'm not a professional gambler in the sense of like that's how I make all my paycheck. Obviously, I have optics um, and then I work through um Twin Spires, Churchill Downs, you know, runs the Derby. I'm employed by them. So there's there's different ways that I, I'm collecting income outside of playing professionally, even though that would be, you know, kind of the end game at some point where I'd like to get to that point. Sure. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. It's like, I mean, it's the same way that, you know, people piece together a freelance life, you know, within music where it's just like, oh yeah, like I'm playing in a band, but I'm also, you know, doing music criticism or, you know, managing some artists on the side. It's the same sort of thing. You know, you're just, it's this kind of patchwork of things that are all revolved around, you know, the same thing, but you're, you know, you're, you don't just have one title. Right. And yeah, I mean, and then it, you know, it comes down to time where it's like, I, you know, I'm invested somewhere and I can't really turn down, you know, these type of opportunities in order to do work um, and things like that. So it's like, I'm, I'm enjoying the space that I'm in where I can do both, where I can play quite a bit and then still, you know, be, quote, you know, employed, right? Like still put out my work and still, you know, write articles and do analysis and things like that, um, which are all things that I enjoy doing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're not a scumbag human, Emily. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I have my moments. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I mean, through, through this all, I mean, you clearly, you know, still have uh, you know, an identity and a passion for, you know, music, DIY, punk and hardcore. I mean, you know, still calling yourself straight edge, like, you know, you don't need to do that. You're an adult now. Um, but because there's that connection to it, you know, what, what I guess keeps you, you know, connected, not in the f sense that, you know, you're constantly seeking out like, you know, the latest and greatest hardcore band demo or whatever, but, you know, you're still probably, you know, 
putting on that type of music, not on, maybe on a regular basis, but like you still have an affinity for it. So I guess what kind of keeps you connected to it? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the, it's a little bit more, especially now like with COVID not being able to go to shows and stuff, but like um, it's a little bit more, not necessarily forced, but I kind of have to remind myself to where before it was like, that was kind of like my everything, right? To like sure. listen, you know, listen to music and like, yeah, still listen to, to albums that I've been listening to for, you know, 25 years, you know, things like that, that like still get me excited. Um, and it does like help me motivate, like with my work and like, you know, come back around to like what makes me happy, you know, and like, you know, even like doing like, I practice yoga every day and like try to like, you know, a mantra or a focus on what I want to practice and like PMA was like, you know, <laughs> like yeah. my focus for today. So it's like, there's still like these little connections that like come into my, my life and just kind of persist on the daily basis. Well, I, I mean, I, I, as you know, I mean, even though you laughed about it, I mean, that's like, that's really important because it's like all of those things that you, you know, randomly learned in sweaty rooms or, you know, in lyric sheets, like while to you and I, they may seem like a cliche, um, you know, that's only because we've heard them a million times in those sweaty rooms. Whereas like other people like, yes, you know, P- yeah, PMA, like that clearly exists outside of the context of a book and hardcore scene now, but like that stuff is important. And like, you know, <laughs> something like Krishna consciousness, like being, you know, sung at f- us from a band like shelter or whatever. It's like, most people don't even get exposed to that. Like they don't even know what that is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's still, that, that is still like, it's kind of weird to me because it is so like, ingrained in me from such a you know a young age and like even if something's like it's you know heavy music that comes on it's like I've listened to so much heavy music for so long that doesn't seem like so extreme to me to where somebody that wasn't exposed to all that they hear that for the first time it's like their brain doesn't even know what to do with it right like I'm just you know you just kind of get wired in just such a different way right totally and I mean I think it's also um you know not uh, disparaging the way that you were, you know, portrayed in the, you know, the ringer podcast, but it's always like, you know, the, the mainstream person's understanding of like, you know, what like punk and hardcore is. It's always like, you know, and yes, there is truth imbued in the idea that this is like, Oh my gosh, this person's, you know, so crazy. Like they got, you know, spiked hair and they're listening to loud, aggressive music. And it's like, yes, like that is part of that, but that is not like, you know, the, uh, the common experience for everybody. And I, I think that's, you know, always the, to your point of like when people listen to a band, you know, even a band like Rise Against, it's like, oh, wow, that's really aggressive. Whereas like to you and I, it's like, no, like it's really, <laughs> broad, you know, right. <laughs> and and I, I think it's uh, like, do you, I, I presume that, you know, most people don't view you through that lens of the, um, you know, like crazy punk rock girl that's into like horse racing or, you know, is that just, um, or, or do people view you as such? I think people do kind of view me as such because I, I do, I'm very different looking, you know, in the horse racing world, um, just like appearance and character. And obviously my background comes through with all that. Um but I think it's I think it's in a good way because the racetrack itself has so many kind of different characters to it that in some ways it works, but it definitely kind of does make me kind of stand out from the crowd, so to speak. Sure. Right. Yeah. It's like you didn't come to this via the normal channels. <laughs> right. 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 
Um, the last thing I want to hit you on was just the, um, you know, and this may be putting it on the spot, but just like some, you know, uh, I guess foundational bands for you. I mean, you mentioned AFI, um, you know, but what are some of the other bands that are kind of like your, you know, it doesn't even have to be like, oh, the, you know, your top five ba- favorite bands of all time, but, you know, some bands that have had like a lasting impact on you just because I think that, you know, is always uh, fun to understand where people are coming from when it comes to that. You know, that's such a, it is such a, like a hard question for me and it does definitely put me on the spot. Um, yeah, <laughs> and I know it changed, like if I asked you tomorrow, it'd be Especially, you know, especially for me that like, I've just kind of gone through so many like paths, so to speak, right, of like different things that everything is just sort of like, you know, in the moment of where, I, where I'm at at that period of time, like, you know, sure. like page 99 is obviously like really important to me in my life, you know, because of what kind of went on and like, you know, just that different, like where I was in my age and like, you know, putting out the spaz record was like, you know, big at that point in time, even though I was like in high school, but that allowed me to meet a lot of people and like, you know, kind of go in a different way. So it's like those, you know, those bands, obviously, um, you know, I, I told you like in message, but like my ex-boyfriend is still a very close friend of mine, Derek Skase, who's been in like a bunch of hardcore bands, but um, he was in Cold World or he's still in Cold World, but Cold World, yes. like when we are dating and like, so Cold World's like important to me because, um, you know, going to their shows and like fests and like that point in time and like how much Derek's friendship like has meant to me, you know, throughout all these years and, um, you know, things like that. So that's, that's sort of more where I am with bands. Maybe that's a little bit more selfish, but um, then being like, you know, this kind of record at this point in time. So I don't know. That's probably not the best answer, but. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, it's, I, I think that, you know, maybe, uh, you know, as you get older and you look back at the, you know, importance of, you know, whatever records or bands you do imbue so much. And sorry, that's the second time I've used the word imbue, but that's just a good word. (laughs) But I think you, you inject so much meaning into these bands that you have, you know, an emotional connection with, um, you know, not only because you enjoy their music, but you have this like real touch point where it's like, oh yes, like, I remember putting on this show. I remember putting on this record or whatever. It's just like, that's going to be inherently more important to you than just, you know, a, a band who you enjoyed their record or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm sure as soon as we get off the call and like in an hour while I'm you know, watching for chasing, I'll be like, why did I mention this one? I'll have like five just like ready to fire. But um, yeah, that's usually how it goes. Yeah, no, no, I understand. Well, and I mean, Cold, Cold World is such an interesting band because it's like, I remember, um, it's like I, I did uh, that Sound and Fury music festival for a few years. Me, me and one of my friends, uh, Joey, we did it from like 2010 to like 2013. But okay. I, mean, I think I went all those years, actually. Okay. I, honestly, I it was so funny because I think it was – I can't remember which year that we uh, we booked Cold World. I mean, because Cold World like played like every other year to that thing. But I just remember it was so interesting because it's like – it's not like Cold World is prolific. Like, you know, I mean, yeah, they put out – some music over time, but just like there's such a weirdo band that <laughs> hit at just the right times and combining all of these, you know, interesting influences. And then the fact that they, you know, were kind of the OGs in regards to the merch game of like, hey, we're we're more of a merch band than we are <laughs> a band band. And like they're just so interesting because of that. So it's like it, it's cool that, you know, you have an attachment to that because I, I think that, you know, that band is important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it, you know, I would still go to their shows and still like go off like if they, <laughs> when they play. So I have fun at their shows. 
Yeah, yeah. No, that's amazing. Well, Emily, I really appreciate you uh, letting me kind of, you know, ping pong around your life and, uh, you know, talk, talk about things that you don't normally talk about on a daily basis. Yeah, definitely. I think it was it was good. I'm glad that you offered. I'm glad that you listened to um, listen to gamblers. I know it's kind of crossed like a lot of people, um, you know, that that aren't necessarily horse players. And I think that was kind of, you know, David's idea with it, because um, I people are fascinated by it. And I mean, in terms of horse racing, it's, it's obviously something I love if, you know, people are ever like looking, you know, want to want a hobby or whatever. I mean, we race 364 days a year. It's great. You can get involved. Um, it's solving puzzles every day. Um, it's different than sports because, you know, you're, you're wagering against other people. You know, I got started playing um, fantasy tournaments with horses. So there's that avenue that you can get into where it's, you know, you don't have to necessarily go into your wallet. Like for every race, you know, you pay $20 or five bucks or some of them are free. And, you know, there's a set number of races and you're just basically playing against those people in that area. Um, and so I know it's different, like people that are listening to this, but, um, you know, or even just a day at the track is just awesome. So hopefully people can kind of get exposed from that aspect. Yeah, no, that's, it's really cool. Cause I, I think that, you know, the experience of that and the experience of horse racing, like, you know, people should experience that at least once in their life just to have that, um, you know, that, that connectivity where it's just like, Oh, this is what this is. Cause I, I mean, I definitely went to the track as a kid with my, you know, father and it was like, I mean, that was in the early nineties. So, you know, seediness definitely abounded in you know, the San Andita racetrack where it was like, Oh my gosh, who are these people? Like, I'm so nostalgic for that. So like, if I see like that seedy part of a racetrack, they've tried to clean it up so much. Right. They try to make it look right. like, you know, most like just most sports areas now. Right. They're, they're just like, they're over the top. And of course you're paying for that too. Right. But it's just like, it almost takes away so much of like just the raw character of it. So I, you know, I yearn for that. Like when I see it, like in old movies or there's like Santa Anita or Hollywood Park, RIP, you know, in movies where it's like, they just, they highlight that seediness of it. And like, that excites me. <laughs> like I like, I like that aspect of it. Well, it, it is very akin to, you know, if you were to go to, you know, a, a DIY space that like, you know, and if you were just used to going to quote unquote concerts and you brought a person to, you know, the smell in Los Angeles or whatever, they're going to be like, what the hell am I doing here? What is this? Right, right. And yes, I mean, and that's probably true. I mean, that's why, you know, I feel more at home, like on the grandstand level than I do. Like when, you know, someone's like, hey, come up to this, you know, the skybox or whatever, you know, it's like, okay, this is cool or whatever. But I'm like, I'm so much more comfortable with being down just like in the mix of the whole thing. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're like, here's the, uh, you know, here's the person that's, uh, you know, smoking their cigar and then, you know, here's a, a housewife and, you know, here's a father and son. Like it's just everybody down here. Right. Right. That was Emily, and thank you very much for coming on the show, because uh, I know this was a random request, and you didn't need to do this, but you did, and I appreciate that very much. So this was great. Uh, what do I got next week? Actually, you know, I, I teased this person last week, but then I decided to push it back because, uh, you know, he had appeared on some other podcasts, and I was like, ah, I don't want to, you know, put out too much content from one particular person. So next week is Chase Mason from Gate Creeper. I'm excited to bring in this conversation, and uh, yeah, it'll be a great one. So until then, please be safe, everybody.